Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord together this morning? We uh, go through a week and sometimes there are tough weeks or exhausting weeks or just uh, in some cases probably just overwhelming weeks in the sense of of all the preaching and things that uh, I know the men had just went through. But it's always good to get back together and to kind of start a new week and go with anticipation from here what the Lord has for us in this next week. Psalm 27 said, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. While we may not be able to spend all our days every day together here, There will be a day when believers will be able to dwell in the house of the Lord and spend all the days of their lives gazing upon the beauty of their Lord. I hope that you're looking forward to that if you are one of his children. That's, That's going to be a great time. I've been working on the topic of today's message for a few weeks. I kind of didn't want to... Uh, do an introduction into the Sermon of the Mount or the Beatitudes. I'm wanting to save that for Bob when he uh, begins that section, which will take place very soon. But it seemed like my mind uh, continually kept coming back to uh, the section in chapter 4 of Matthew that Bob has already spent a couple weeks, which, of course, is kind of challenging because... Those of you that have been here for those sermons, I'll be repeating or or going over some verses that Bob has already talked about, but regardless of my trying to move from that passage, it just didn't seem to happen. So obviously, it is intended for me to say a few things about it, and hopefully it will be encouraging to you. So I do plan on speaking some on that, starting in the verse uh, 12 of Matthew 4, if you want to start turning in that direction. My intent is to add some information that I don't believe Bob has covered uh, in the particular sermons he did, but I thought that would be helpful and uh, uh, hopefully not cause us to lose interest in this section. I personally like to have Uh, more historical context Uh, when I'm reading a book or in the sense of Scripture, reading a portion of Scripture or a book in Scripture. It helps me to visualize and understand more fully what the people that are hearing the message or the people that are involved in it are going through or what they are experiencing at the time. I also think this particular section, Bob did it in, um, I think, three or four messages, which would be natural because of its length. But I think this section from verse 12 through the end of chapter 4 is actually a continual event that's taking place and actually goes together. Sometimes we miss that when we um, look even in our translations where it has different sections that, that... particular area is broken into. Mine says uh, Jesus begins his ministry. Another section is Jesus calls the first disciples and then Jesus ministers to great crowds. 
we miss it sometimes when our translations um, put sections or seem to break things up a little bit. But this passage actually flows together. It was things that just went continually from verse 12 right into the various um, events that were taking place. So I hope today just to, that, that what I uh, add to this will again just help us to not only understand this passage a little better, but also help Bob uh, and help us to prepare to go into the next section, which is the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, which is a, a lovely part of, of uh, Scripture. It's, in, it's, 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 it's a great passage and great um, uh, things that Jesus said and did while he was here on earth and very important for us as believers to, uh, to hear and understand. So let's turn in our Bibles to uh, Matthew 4, and uh, I'm going to start reading at verse 12. It says, now when he heard that Jesus had, or John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then this is the prophecy. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began preaching, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw the two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. When reading Matthew, we must always remember who wrote it and who his intended audience was to be. If we want to be able to understand what is being said and why it's being said. In Luke 5:27, I'm going to turn there quickly. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a 
large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That Levi mentioned in Luke is our Matthew, who wrote this book. From the earliest years of church history, Matthew has been considered the author of the gospel according to Matthew, even though in it itself he does not claim that he has written it, but since the earliest time of our churches, that has been accepted. Matthew is a a Jew, and his book was written primarily to Jews about the Jewish Messiah, whose name is Jesus. The book is the most Jewish of the Gospels. It focuses and addresses things that would be of importance to a Jew pertaining to the Messiah and His coming. That is one of the reasons why the four Gospels can sometimes seem like they say different things slightly or some event may be in one or a couple and not in another. Because it depended on what the author of that particular book and the audience receiving it, what was important to them. And some things were more important or the emphasis was different than it would be in the other. Praise be to God that we have all the books to be able to read them and even get a more complete picture of of what was going on. But it is important to understand that. There are some things that only appear in Matthew, for instance, and it doesn't appear in the other Gospels. But Matthew was writing his book for a particular purpose and a particular audience. And it's important for us as readers to understand that. Verse 12 says that after Jesus heard about John the Baptist's arrest, he withdrew into Galilee. According to John in his letter, Jesus had been ministering some in Galilee and Judea prior to John the Baptist's arrest. From the time of his temptation to John the Baptist's arrest was probably around a year time period. In that time period, Jesus was doing things and moving around and, and having more of a, of a uh, just for a little less public ministry than he is going to start here. It was a little less subdued, a little more subdued in the sense of not quite as active in some ways as it becomes starting in verse 12. But in that time period, in that year time period, he was traveling around in Galilee and Judea And that's when and where Jesus turned the water into wine in in Cana, for instance. He was in Jerusalem for Passover and he drove the money changers from the table or from the temple. He had the talk with Nicodemus that is told in the beginning of, of John. But after John the Baptist's arrest, Jesus withdrew to Galilee. And in case you've never been told this before, let me make it clear for you. Maybe even be the first that have told you this. 
There is nothing in the life of Jesus that is coincidental. Jesus didn't just happen to withdraw to Galilee. Everything is for a reason and follows the plan of God. So why Galilee? Why not Judea, for instance? Judea was the most Jewish of the tribes of Israel. Why wouldn't he start there? Why not Jerusalem? The city of David. That would make sense. At this time in in world history, why not Rome? Rome was the center of the known world at that time. First of all, it had to take place. He had to go to Galilee to fulfill a very important Old Testament prophecy found in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, which Matthew summarizes for us in in his verses 14 through 16, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali The way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This particular quotation is unique in Matthew in the Gospels. Matthew is identifying Jesus as the Jewish Messiah and King by fulfilling Isaiah 9. There are many Old Testament prophecies pertaining to Messiah. And if Jesus did not fulfill every one of them, he could not be Messiah. Second, what was Jesus' message? Verse 17 says, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This message is exactly the same as John the Baptist, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. That was what he was preaching. The John MacArthur Bible Commentary says of this verse, the opening words of his first sermon sets the tone for Jesus' entire ministry. I agree with that. Not only do I agree with it, it makes sense. Why would Jesus start off on some, I mean, if that was even possible, why would Jesus start off on something that is not of great importance to him? I believe that what was most important to Jesus was the very first thing he's doing. Preaching repentance. This subject is constantly repeated throughout Jesus' public preaching. And it was his departing charge to his disciples when he commands them to preach that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name that we find in Luke 24, 47. 
Repentance is a theme and the primary theme of Jesus' message. And he gives that charge to his disciples. Repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance refers to the desire to turn from sin and restore one's relationship to God. Repentance is at the very heart of and proves one's salvation. I'm going to repeat that. Repentance is at the very heart of and proves one's salvation. Unbelievers repent of their sin initially when they're saved. And then as believers repent of their sins continually to keep the joy and blessing of their relationship with God. So we need repentance to get into this life, but we also need repentance as we're living this life on earth to confess our sins and repent of what we're doing wrong to maintain the joy and blessings of that relationship we have with God that He wants for us. The message of Jesus is exactly the message ministers have been given to preach to people everywhere today. And I would go even further. The message of Jesus is exactly the message that He has given every believer to do today. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Only Matthew's gospel uses uh, this particular expression, the words, or the words or the phrase, kingdom of heaven, by which he means kingdom of God. But again, understanding the writer and his attended audience, we see that Matthew is being careful, as a good Jew would do, speaking to a Jewish audience, about using the name of God in, in any use, but especially in public. They're very cautious about handling God's name. Oh, that we might learn from that. We use it quite often, much too commonly, and many times disrespectfully. The rest of scriptures doesn't use the phrase kingdom of God, but they, they do use, or I'm sorry, they use the, the phrase kingdom of God, which by that means the sphere of God's dominion over those who belong to him. The kingdom is now manifested in heaven's spiritual role over the hearts of believers. That's where the, the, the kingdom of God is at, is in our hearts, if you're a believer but one day will be established in a literal, earthly kingdom. Ted, can you put the uh, map up for me? Thirdly, Galilee is the northernmost part of Palestine. This, this map uh, needs to be a little bit thinner or longer, but that's how it comes out on it. But the the green in the center is basically Galilee. It's about 50 miles long by 25 miles wide. It extends along the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. 
And on the western side, it's bordered by Phoenicia, so it doesn't quite reach the Mediterranean Sea. But it was the most fertile region of Palestine. They could grow anything there. It was very, uh, very much a farm area. But it was also densely populated. The Jewish historian and former governor of Galilee, Josephus, wrote that there were 204 villages in Galilee with populations exceeding 15,000 inhabitants. That would add up to, I believe, over 3 million people living in an area smaller than the county of Humboldt. It occupied the land that was assigned by Joshua to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. It is identified as Galilee of the Gentiles in the prophecy in Matthew, which probably refers to 20 Gentile cities that were given to King Solomon by Haram, king of Tyre, which is referred to in 1 Kings chapter 9. It had many Gentile cities. And of course, a Gentile is someone who is not a Jew. In Old Testament history, the Jews primarily, and of course in early um, New Testament, but there you were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. And the Jews did not look kindly most of the time on Gentiles. But there were many Gentile cities here. And there became even more, it became even more Gentile after the Assyrian conquest of the northern kingdom that took place in 721 B.C. Remember, they were, they were taken away into captivity and eventually replaced. And, and, and the people that they took out, the, the, the Assyrians took out, they replaced them with other people from their conquered kingdom. So it even had more Gentiles and more non-Jewish people put into that location, transplanted into that place. So it even became more Gentile. On top of that, it's an area that had some of the great trading roads of the region running through it. The north-south road extended from Damascus up in Syria and ran all the way down to Egypt and into, and into Africa. The east-west road ran from the Mediterranean Sea and went on into the eastern frontier. The traffic of the world, soldiers, travelers, merchants, all would have passed through Galilee on some of their travels. There was a saying at the time in Galilee that Judea is on the way to nowhere Galilee is on the way to everywhere. Galilee's location resulted in it having been invaded and conquered over its history. And because of all the things taking place, being influenced by the outside world. So not only is there a large population in Galilee, but there's a potential because of the traveling and the, 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 the roads that go out of it to reach all over the world, the known world at the time, 
by being in Galilee and talking and, and preaching there. But we also see that Galilee was spiritually dark. You sort of think of stories of sailors or soldiers and bases and places that they travel and they always have a reputation of, of uh, debauchery and other things that take place. So when you think of some of these world cities that sailors have been through and you, you think of the various sins and things that take place there, that was regions of Galilee. These people passed through there too. It was a spiritually dark area. So what better location for Jesus to start his ministry and preach repentance? He had a large audience there. He had a large audience of sinners who needed to hear the message of repentance. Isaiah had prophesied that light would come into this region. And Matthew saw the movement of Jesus as fulfillment of this prophecy. One of Messiah's works was to bring light into darkness, for he would be a light to both Jew and Gentile. So that's why he had to go to, to Galilee. Jesus conducted the greater part of his formal three-year ministry from his base in Galilee. He left his home and moved there, never to return permanently back to his hometown of Nazareth. One of the things he did, we see in verses 18 through 22, the calling of his first disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It says, while Walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And, on, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, his father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father and followed him. Jesus went and called his followers. He's selecting the men that he is going to train and teach to help him to do the ministry that he has before him. You know, Jesus, Jesus could have saved all that he's going to save all by himself in the sense of not needing any help or any human to be involved at all in it. He could have done it all. He had that power. He could have easily done it. But instead, he calls followers that he uses to help get the message out of repentance and the gospel. He calls these men to be fishers of men. He calls us to be fishermen of men and women today. In verse 23, 
It says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. The descriptions of, in Matthew 4 of what Jesus was doing should cause us all to self-examination. Jesus wanted to see people saved. He was preaching repentance. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was healing people. makes me think in my own life of what am I doing? Why am I here? Why did God save me? And who is around me that doesn't know Christ that I should be sharing that message with? I think we should all individually be looking and self-examining ourselves, but I think we should also be looking at ourselves as a body here in the Ill River Valley this local church. Do you know what the greatest work in the heart of God is? The greatest concern in God's mind is evangelism. Winning the loss is God's greatest concern. If you're a believer today, He saved you and He's saving others. But what is important to Christ, what is important to God, should be important to us. If it was important for Him to be evangelizing, it should be important to us to be doing that. The Greek word, in fact, that's translated evangelize is used at least 53 times in the New Testament. It's a frequent topic. The Great Commission at the end of Matthew chapter 28 summarizes it. When the Lord said, go into all the world, winning people to Christ, and baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. He left the earth at the end of his public ministry with a command to all his followers to go and evangelize. To go and win people to Christ. Baptize them and teach them the things that I've told you. This is is the greatest task. This is the greatest task the church has. And it's so easy for us to look at it as a task for us internationally, around the world. But we live in a dark area here in the north coast of California. 
we have a lot of the same things that Galilee was dealing with. Major roads passing through. Maybe not as many people, but probably that number will pass through in a year on the highway, stopping in and doing things, passing through during the summer. But our area that we live in is full of people dwelling in great darkness. How will they hear about the great light? Who will tell them the gospel of the kingdom? I believe that what was important for Jesus should be important to us. And we should be looking at how to be the most effective and persistent that we could be in trying to share the gospel and share Christ to those around us. We should not be just a, a local church in this building here on the corner of N and 13th just for the sole purpose of us coming together, which is as important in the church. That's an important part of it is coming together and to fellowship and pray and teach and, and uh, be refreshed. That is important for here. But we should also be actively reaching outside the four walls of this building into our community. We're commanded to carry out the Great Commission. The Great Commission wasn't a, if you have time, go out and try to do this. We're told to go out and do this. We're also told that we're supposed to live lives worthy of the calling that we've been called to. Our lives and how we exhibit Christ in our lives from day to day in our workplace and at school and at our homes and at church. All those places are also ways we evangelize. Will someone who knows me at my work recognize me as the same person that's here in church? How do we reach the people involved in the marijuana culture that we're cursed with in this area? And so often is accepted as just part of life in the North Coast. The people are chasing the same things that all lost people chase. Wealth and traveling and desires and all the things that are wrapped up in that. How do we affect and reach the Hispanic community that we have around us? Many of them here in a, in a very short period of time will park around our building here to walk up to the Catholic Church. And You probably don't know it, but I can assure you that in that crowd are drug dealers and cartel members that are on their way to church to confess to a priest their sins and start all over right back in the life they've been doing because the church they go to makes it easy for them to seek forgiveness and feel better about themselves but not have any change in their life. How do we reach those people? 
How do we reach the drug users and the, the criminals that we constantly are having released back on the street and that have been causing all the crime that goes on in our, our community? How do we reach anyone that doesn't know Jesus? Some of us, I know, or in fact, I, I, I specifically know a number of people that I, I know of things that you do on a regular basis. You already are meeting with people regularly or discipling people or involved in small groups or various things that you're involved in on a regular basis, and it's wonderful. And I'm not really trying to make anybody feel bad about anything. I, I can't make you do what you're supposed to do that God commanded you. All of us are responsible to God for how we respond to the Great Commission. But I I am responsible to make sure to call you to what Scripture says and to urge you to do a self-reflection on how are you doing Is there things you could do better? Is there things I can do better? Is there things as a body we can do that would be more of a concerted effort to be able to work in our community and evangelize the lost? There always is. If you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, you should desire to live in a way that's pleasing to God. You should desire to be evangelizing. Now, I know that some of that can be scary. I know that some people have a hard time maybe talking to someone they don't know. And that's understandable. But think of all the people that you do know that probably don't know Christ. If, if, you've, never, if you've never learned or don't know how to evangelize, I'd like to offer you an opportunity to grab one of the elders afterwards and let us know what's going on so that we could try to find a way to sit down with you and show you how to do it and work with you on that. Some of it can be relatively easy in the sense of where you're living in the neighborhoods that, in, that you live in or the, or the senior complex you live in or wherever you're at to be able to share with people that are around you already. But we would be glad to help you learn how to do that. And as the message of Christ... Can you mute me, Ted?